So welcome to Nipton Talks. I am Dr. Ashley Roby. I am a quadruple board certified plastic surgeon here with Gavi Upal. Gavi is both a registered nurse and a nurse practitioner. And today we are going to be talking about peptides. Thanks for coming on, Gavi. Thanks, Dr. Roby, and thank you for that inter- intro. Yeah, so I'm Gavi. I'm a triple board certified nurse practitioner ready to talk about this fun world of peptides with you. Funny because just the other day, the spouse of a patient asked me, what peptide should I be on? Like, it's just rattle off the three things real fast and see you later. And I didn't want to roll my eyes at him because like, it gets a legitimate question, but it's, it's not that simple. I would agree. I think it's very similar to when people ask, what diet should I be on? What right. workouts should I be on? Exactly. So I think we should start off just with the basics, and that is what are peptides? Yeah, I think starting off with a basic question like that's going to be perfect. Um, it's kind of complicated in my opinion. <laughs> peptides are short-chained amino acid sequences. Basically, they are the building blocks of proteins. And so what does that necessarily mean? They act or interact with hormones as messengers, enzymes to cause biological effects in the body. So that would be things such as helping with hormone production, growth hormone release, improving immune function, aiding in muscle recovery, muscle growth, just to name off a few of the things. So they're almost like proteins, but smaller. So not a full protein status just because the size of the sequence, Um, but they do similar things to fully functioning proteins, um, acting as hormones, acting as messengers, affecting enzymes. Um, There are over 7,000 peptides that have been identified in the human body. One that I know most everyone is familiar with is insulin. So the peptide that your body uses as part of glucose homeostasis, so regulating the glucose levels in your body. So that being said, now that we know that peptides are kind of like small proteins, who is a good candidate for peptides who should be considering their use for their medical health? Is there a general category of of person, do you think? Yeah, yeah. I think who should be on peptides. It depends on the demographic listening to this podcast now. Everyone, Gabby. Everybody. Every demographic, (laughs) I'm sure that you'll find a niche that needs peptides. Honestly, yes. So peptides are all about optimizing. The most optimal candidates for peptides would be the ones that are already working on diet and lifestyle. They've got a good baseline on the basic necessities. Mm -hmm. And then really they're looking for something that's gonna enhance performance. You know, whether that's muscular function performance or cognitive function, just, you know, the people that are looking for that next step, another tool to have in their toolbox. So I myself take some peptides. I have family members that also take some. Mm -hmm. How about you? Are you on anything? I am not on perfect already. You don't need the <laughs> enhancement. You don't need enhancements. No. I am still working on that diet and lifestyle. Yeah. I need that to be to a T for the next five to six months, and then I will consider peptides. Well, you're right. For any kind of healthy lifestyle, so that is the crux of what's important. That's the backbone of, of everything. You can't um, go out and booze all night and not sleep and mm-hmm. then just take some peptides and balance it out. It doesn't really work like that. Peptides, um, from a health perspective, are meant to enhance an already good lifestyle. Exactly. Right? So Correct. I think that that's an important point that you're making. So tell me about semaglutide because certainly from a media perspective, it has gained a lot of attention. People talk about it as being a celebrity weight loss drug. Tell me about what that is and what your experience is as far as prescribing that to patients. Patients. Semaglutide is definitely in mainstream media right now. Mm-hmm. Before we hop into that, I wanted to bring up a something that you mentioned that, and it has to relate to semaglutide too. None of these peptides are going to be magic bullets. Right. So semaglutide is in the media right now as that weight loss medication, but we have to consider that diet and lifestyle piece before patients get started on semaglutide to really optimize the benefits of it. Semaglutide mimics a GLP-1 hormone that is released in the GI tract in response to eating. And so what it does is it helps your body produce more insulin. 
And so what does it do for a patient in terms of weight loss? It works by delaying gastric emptying, meaning it takes food longer to process through the GI tract. So you feel fuller more quickly? More quickly. It does, yeah. So you feel fuller more quickly. Um, It also um, increases the feelings of fullness as well. So patients will notice that portions start getting smaller and smaller Mm -hmm. because they're feeling full a lot sooner than they would have before. Um, There's also been studies that have shown that it alters food reward pathways. Interesting. And so that kind of relates back to the smaller portion sizes, but also for those people that look at their portion sizes and just assume that I have to eat this entire thing because it's sitting in front of me rather than listening to my hunger cues. Also, those patients that have to struggle with emotional eating. Well, for anyone that has a lot of extra weight, there probably is some of that emotional component with regards to, you know, you obviously don't need that food. Your body's not telling you it needs it. There's something that's going on mentally that's making you want to eat it. So that is a nice kind of adjunct as far as what some of the things that semaglutide could do. One thing that I thought was of interest, especially for me as a plastic surgeon, is the delayed gastric emptying, the uh, anesthesiologists as a society have come out and said that they want patients to stop that medication one week prior to surgery just so that they don't go into surgery with a full stomach. That's why people stop eating usually after midnight or so before a planned surgery because you don't want a full stomach. You don't want to, while you're asleep, accidentally aspirate, meaning burp up some of that food and have it go into your lungs. That can be really dangerous. So if you are on semaglutide and you're going to have some kind of procedure where you're going to sleep, definitely stop it a week prior. That's a really good point. Do you think any of that has to do with constipation as well? Well, I think it's primarily the delayed gastric emptying. Mm-hmm. I mean, once you're past the ileocolic valve, right, um, the food probably is going to take a certain direction. Like it's going to okay. go one way, but if you're uh, prior to that, I think maybe more prone to have it come back up through the esophagus and your mouth and yeah. slash lungs. <laughs> Definitely don't want that. Um, so one of the challenges with peptides in general is that there are not a lot of double-blinded placebo-controlled trials, which from a practitioner perspective, that's what you're looking for to help you make a decision as to whether or not, hey, this medication or this drug, this peptide, is going to be really good for this indication, and these are the results, and these are the risks. There's not as much of that. A lot of the semaglutide studies are for the treatment of diabetes, and that was the initial indication for this medication for the treatment of diabetes because of its effects on glucose. But there was one study that I came across, the STEP, the semaglutide treatment effect in people with obesity trial, which followed people for 68 weeks, and they showed that at, and you can have a range of doses, and classically people in semaglutide will start off at a lower dose and slowly escalate that as they tolerate it to higher doses. But at the highest dose of this trial, which is a 2.4 milligram per week dose, those participants lost around 15% of their initial body weight. So those that weighed 200 pounds at the beginning of the trial weighed 170 pounds at the end. So losing 30 pounds for like the average person that comes into my clinic saying, oh, I want to lose um, 10, 20, you know, maybe 30 pounds, that would be the extra little kick that they would need to get closer to that ideal weight. With its consistency, it certainly does seem like a promising and reliable drug. And that's in contrast to some of the other medications that certainly the weight loss world has experienced, things like fentermine, which increases your metabolism because it's a stimulant, but you can only be on it for so many months in a row, and it's just not something that you can maintain, and then as soon as you get off, you're kind of gaining weight back. Semaglutide, you can be on long-term. You don't have to go off of it after a few months, so that can be helpful. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned fentramine because I think a lot of... Not a peptide, but... (laughs) No, it's definitely not a peptide. And actually, many practitioners look at fentramine and other alternatives to fentramine as weight loss tools, whereas semaglutide, for some people, has been looked at as the first true weight loss medication that has been out on the market. But yeah, you know, up to 15% of 
weight loss is incredible for a person. Mm -hmm. Typically with diet and lifestyle, you can get about five to 10. Bariatric surgery, you can get what, like 15 to 20%? They usually talk about it in percent of excess body weight. So the gastric band is around 40%. The Rue and Y is around 60%. And the duodenal switch is upwards of 60, like approaching 80% of excess body weight. So, but then, the, you know, that results in a malabsorption issue. So you're mm -hmm. literally cutting out portions and rerouting your intestines, resulting in less absorption of food and nutrients and you can actually have insufficient absorption, so malnutrition of certain nutrients. So uh, this would not be associated with fat risk. Also, you don't have to have surgery, so that's appealing too. That's true. Yeah, and even 5% weight loss can improve cardiometabolic risk factors. Sure. So that's something that's major to consider as well when we're talking about semaglutide. It is more than just a weight loss medication. It improves some of the overall cardiovascular risk factors. Are you hearing much from patients with concerns about thyroid cancer risk? I know that has come up in, um, in some discussions, like, oh, there may be theoretical increased risk of thyroid cancer. Is that something you have patients asking about? Or is that something that you tell people about when you talk about the medication? I personally have not had patients specifically ask about it, but there has been raising concern about it based on findings from animal studies. We know that sometimes animal studies don't necessarily correlate to what we see in humans. Sure. And so for patients that we see in the clinic, I will always double check to make sure that there wasn't a history of thyroid cancer for them or any family history of thyroid cancer. Mm -hmm. We do an assessment prior to make sure we're not, you know, palpating any nodules. We do have thyroid testing in our labs beforehand, not that that would necessarily indicate sure. thyroid cancer, but that is an additional thing that we do check. And then for any patients that we may have some concern for, we would get a thyroid ultrasound. But you had mentioned that step clinical trial. When you read the clinical trial, it actually showed that there was not a higher incidence of thyroid cancer among those patients that were taking the medication sure. in comparison to the placebo patient. That's a good sign. They did follow people for 68 weeks, and that's not years upon years. So that is some good data, but um, the, the, the question as to what happens after you've been on this medication for 10 plus years, is there an increased risk of thyroid cancer? And I, you know, I guess we don't know the answer to that. But so far, it doesn't seem like it's an overwhelmingly obvious risk. Um, how about Manjaro? Yeah, Manjaro is newer on yeah. the market. It is similar to semaglutide, but it is a once-weekly injectable just like semaglutide is. It has the GLP-1 aspect of it, but it also has GIP. And so that's a glucose-dependent insulin-tropic peptide. It's like Mouthful. a million words, yes. <laughs> but the way that it works is the GIP receptors are stimulated, and so they promote the release of insulin from the pancreatic beta cells. Sure. What that in turn does is helps to decrease blood sugar mm -hmm. and facilitates the uptake of glucose into cells for actual energy utilization. So with a mechanism of action at two different sites, should patients expect a slightly increased weight loss as compared to semaglutide? I have heard Anecdot uh, anecdotally that patients have had a higher um, weight loss with Munjaro. Um, there are also some patients that once they plateau on the semaglutide, once you're mm -hmm. up to the 2.4 milligrams and they've gotten to a pretty steady weight, those may be patients that will do well on Munjaro. It is a little bit pricier than semaglutide is, and so regardless of where your clinic, clinic is getting the semaglutide or Munjaro from, mm -hmm. I do feel like the Munjaro is a, a slight bit pricier. Okay. Both have that decrease in body weight. One of the things I wanted to talk about was when we say a 15% reduction in body weight, what does that necessarily mean? Right. You know, you're going to lose body weight from... What's the composition of that weight? Exactly. Is it fat mass? Is it muscle mass? There have been some news reportings that I saw about patients losing a majority of their muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, you look at the therapy that you're giving and you decide, is this going to be beneficial for a patient if the majority of what they're losing is that muscle mass, which is extremely important for us as we get older or as we age. And how are you able to determine what percent they're losing? So 
Well, Dr. Ruby already knows we use a Fit3D scanner. Um, and so what that is, is it's a scanner that uses DEXA technology, basically. It uses the DEXA algorithm without the radiographic exposure, but it gives you a breakdown of your muscle mass and your um, fat mass to be mm -hmm. able to watch that trend over time. Now, at Live Better MD, one of the things that we sort of pride ourselves on is that we really focus on that diet and lifestyle aspect prior to the initiation of semaglutide therapy. We want to help our clients have weight loss, but we also want to make sure that it's sustainable weight loss that they'll be able to maintain years to come. So if you just have someone that says, look, Gabby, I've already tried that. It doesn't work. I'm not going to do diet and exercise. Just give me the semaglutide. What is your response to them? Like, Why not? It's Burger King. Give them what they want. <laughs> they ordered it. Give it to them, yes. right? Um, yeah, extra pickles, works. whatever they yes. want with it. Yes. <laughs> Um, that it is one of the trickiest conversations to have with a patient. Mm -hmm. Now, I definitely sit down with the patients and I go through the difference between fat and muscle loss. We are setting you up with these dietary changes. Those first, you know, let's say it's a month or two of that diet and lifestyle changes. Those are not the months that we're utilizing to lose weight. Those are the months that we're utilizing to clean out your kitchen cabinets. Sure. Let's introduce good quality, higher quality foods into your diet. Um, it's more than just calories in and calories out. We really want to look at the quality of your food. So you can't just say, I'll, I'm going to have Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> for breakfast and lunch and dinner and take some glutide. That's a bad idea. It's 1,200 calories. Why won't yeah, I lose weight the problem? off of it? It's going to work. Yeah, and then, you know... Four or five months down the road, you've lost all of your muscle mass and your fat mass has actually increased. And the whole you are what you eat phenomenon comes into play. Mm -hmm. And if all you subsist on are donuts or animal crackers or whatever, yeah, um, your body's going to be garbage. I have a patient example that he's my like star semaglutide patient. Nice. Did exactly what we asked. I mean, switched out his diet incredibly. Semaglutide actually helped him reduce the amount of alcohol he was drinking as well through that food reward pathway. Cool. Yeah, there's some studies out now that have looked at alcohol dependence and yeah. the decrease of that with semaglutide. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think he had lost close to ooh, eight pounds of fat mass and had gained 10 pounds of muscle mass. Wow. So, so he actually put on two pounds and he was, he, he was happy? He was happy. And that was over mm -hmm. the course of what time frame? That was over, I would say maybe close to four months. Okay. He did do that initial one to two months of that diet and lifestyle change mm -hmm. and continued that. And even up to this day, he is very grateful that we went through that process because he's able to not have to worry about thinking about calories. I mean, he's fueling his body with high quality foods and you having that semaglutide in his back pocket aiding as well. I get why people are excited when they have the prospect of starting something new or starting a new medication mm -hmm. that does have good outcomes that they want to start it right away. But your point does make sense too in that any kind of major change does have to have the associated diet and exercise changes as well. And if you try to bypass that portion and subsist on things like garbage plus semaglutide, it's not going to be good for you long-term. So I empathize with the frustration, but really our goal is to try to help people be as healthy as possible. And that always does start with some of the basics, the diet and exercise. So Manjaro semaglutide, definitely game changers in the world of weight loss and weight management. So it's exciting to see what those have been able to do for patients. But yes, there's still hard work associated with it. Yeah, just like there would be with anything, really. It's true for anything good in life. Like if <laughs> something just hands you something and it's too easy, you're probably not going to appreciate it. So, all right, moving on. How about um, BPC-157, the body protective compound 157? It's been used in regenerative medicine, specifically in the areas of tendons and ligaments. Uh, the reason being that those areas notoriously have not amazing blood supplies. So, you know, when your body's trying to heal something, it does the best job when it has an abundant blood supply so that it can bring in the inflammatory cells and repair those structures. So when you have an area that just inherently has a, a it's not substandard, but not as great of a blood supply as other parts of your body, like the actual muscle bellies themselves, 
they can potentially struggle with regards to healing. So I know this particular peptide, the BPC-157, has been utilized in areas like tendons and ligaments to help improve healing. And the studies that they have done in, I believe they're rodents, I think in, in rats. They were, yes. Rats. They showed that it did help substantially those rats that had areas of poor healing in their Achilles tendon. So that is pretty interesting with regards to healing, almost more in like a kind of like a sports medicine perspective. The whole weekend warrior phenomenon as you enter into your like 30s and 40s, um, certain activities that you kind of take for granted, like I'm going to go out and play flag football, even though I haven't played for 10 years. <laughs> Um, or like moving, you know, those things like lifting really heavy things and you don't normally lift it. Maybe you do. It can make your body sore and you can, and it can stress out the various body parts. So this peptide sounds promising from that perspective because, um, who doesn't want accelerated wound healing, especially in areas that are um, classically more challenging. Yeah, I think this peptide has also um, kind of emerged in the bodybuilding community as well and with athletes in general, especially those with those like sports related injuries. Those are hard to heal. I mean, they take yeah. quite some time and not it's not that BPC is going to magically fix it in a day or two, mm-hmm. but it's definitely going to aid in that recovery process. Um, it has those therapeutic effects on the musculoskeletal system, but it also can work on the GI tract as well. So BPC-157 is actually derived from gastric juices. Yeah. And so when there's those, um, <laughs> it sounds kind of gross when you say it. We're just going to um, put these gastric juices in your knees. Yeah, also. we're going to inject those in, or even better, swallow it. Some yeah. good gastric juices. Yeah. Um, But it has uh, been in studies now for treatment of inflammatory bowel disease, Mm -hmm. which we know that's a hard one. There's not a lot um, available for patients to uh, get some symptomatic relief. Yeah, exactly. That and I also saw one, a study with it being used in um, patients with muscular sclerosis as well. Multiple sclerosis. mm -hmm. What did I say? Muscular sclerosis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was just saying multiple sclerosis. Like muscular dystrophy, multiple yeah, sclerosis. It's yeah. fine. All of those inflammatory conditions. Sure. And so it helps in any GI-related concerns, too, that are inflammatory in nature. I mean, a lot of what goes on in our body in general that's bad is an inflammatory process. So all of these medications are trying to quelch that overly aggressive inflammatory response. Actually, I, I've used BPC-157 on my son several times. He's an avid soccer player, and I feel like regularly injuring himself. Fortunately, not so extremely that he has to have surgery or anything, but where he'll have like substantial swelling of a ligament around his knee and I've used BPC-157. I feel like it is helpful. Yeah, is that N of 1 helpful for research? No. Um, But yeah, we're back to the same point, right, where there needs to be more studies. First of all, it's hard because my son's 12 and like they Mm -hmm. heal fast anyways, but I would say anecdotally, it does seem to accelerate the rate of healing a little bit. What they're seeing in rats seems to be true for regular injuries. So that being said, I'm not sure that it has been incorporated into like, you know, you can't go to your ER and be like, oh man, I sprayed my ankle. They're not going to pull out BPC-157 and inject it and say, be on your way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at least not yet. Not yet. Which the scientific rigor is hard to get these peptides out into, you know, traditional medicine. Yeah. But I think N of 1 studies are underrated. N of 1 studies are amazing. Well, you have to start somewhere, right? You have an N of 1. You come up with a hypothesis. Then you come up with a more rigorous study or you have a series. You have N of 5, right? Or And then you come up with a more rigorous study and then you move on from there. So, no, I'm not trying to put down N of 1, but as far as like a statistical analysis with Mm -hmm. that, it's it's not super helpful. I think many patients will ask, okay, if I take BPC, how quickly will this heal? And then they want like an exact percent. Exactly. Um, It's going to reduce your healing by 20%. It exactly like it's yeah. hard, and it really depends it on hard. what ligament or tendon are we talking about. We're talking about your Achilles, which that's going to take quite some time because yeah. there's really not sure. much function you can do throughout the day without using your Achilles tendon. Or are we talking about something like a bicep that you can ice? Sure, and also um, I think different tendons have different degrees of relative hypovascularity too, right? Like the, yeah. the Achilles tendon is a big tendon, and especially in higher risk groups like a diabetic person with some kind of tendinous injury, something like that could be pretty helpful. With your come. son, were you injecting C? Mm-hmm. Okay. Injecting. 
Yeah, we can get a compound at the pharmacy that we regularly use. I just I have some in my refrigerator in case I need it. Just in case. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> what have I hurt now? <laughs> BPC is an amazing peptide. I, it's not only for those athletes. It really could be utilized by anybody. Like you said, you lift heavy boxes one day and you sprain something. You're a grandparent and your grandkids came over for the weekend and all of a sudden everything feels sore. Right, and I think either you can take a systemic non-steroidal, which I think would currently be the standard approach. Just take four ibuprofen or try to target those exact areas with a more of a, and I think that's, that's really, you know, when we talked about earlier about what are peptides and what are they for, they are for this kind of thing, like a more targeted approach to treat those areas that are mostly impacted. All right, moving on. Growth hormones. Obviously, we all have growth hormone. It's a hormone that's in our bodies. By the time we reach 18 to 21, that's when our growth hormones have peaked. And then it kind of subsequently declines after that. There is a negative correlation between growth hormone and BMI. And that, of course, means that as your growth hormone decreases, the likelihood of you having an elevated BMI increases. They're negatively correlated. We certainly do growth hormone testing, but not exactly with growth hormone itself. We test with the IGF-1 as part of our comprehensive lab panel. But when people have deficient growth hormone levels, that has been associated with increased fat mass, decreases in lean body mass, decreased muscle strength, reduced exercise performance, worse cardiac capacity, worse bone density so that you would have increased fractures, thinner skin, and also some of those psychosocial things like fatigue, depression, insomnia, et cetera. So there certainly are advantages to having more optimized growth hormone levels. Part of the challenge of actually prescribing growth hormone itself is that aside from the legal parts where if, I guess if the federal government doesn't like the diagnosis you've given, like your doctor might just go to jail, so they're probably not super excited about that. It scares <laughs> the public at that point, too. They're like... <gasps> Didn't this all start with Barry Bonds and growth hormone? I feel like it was was centered around baseball, like in the 90s. I don't know, but I do. too long ago for you. I feel like growth hormone kind of sparked that fear of steroids and then hormones. And now I, I think for some people, peptides is right along in that because they just assume... You know that they're the same thing as that. Yeah, like peptides are literally like protein. Like so, then like oh, your protein shake is bad. I don't know. <laughs> so it's a it's a it's a it's a steep slope, I suppose. But the the growth hormone obviously you can be prescribed uh, growth hormone somatostatin, but the one that I hear more frequently about is the CJC twelve ninety five. What are your thoughts? Do you have much experience with that particular peptide? I like that you mentioned everything about growth hormone. I think many people don't realize the benefits of growth hormone. It regulates our metabolism. And so when we have those decreasing levels of growth hormone as we age, our metabolism also decreases along with that. But CJC is a peptide in of itself. There's also ipamorelin, which is a peptide, and they work very synergistically with each other. And so they'd be beneficial if we kind of tie both of them together. But CJC is a growth hormone releasing hormone, Mm -hmm. meaning that it stimulates the pituitary gland to have your body release more growth hormone of your own endogenous growth hormone. So we're not giving you any exogenous growth hormone. So you're just getting your body to make more of its own stuff. Exactly, exactly. And then ipramorelin is a growth hormone secretagogue. So that actually produces a little bit more growth hormone as well. So one releases it, one helps to produce it. Ipamorelin works through the ghrelin pathway. Mm-hmm. Um, Everyone knows about that. The hunger hormone. I always think like ghrelin and is going to make me a gremlin because I'm going to be a monster if I am hungry. Yeah. Nothing but, to eat after midnight. Was it midnight? The gremlins? We couldn't feed them after like a certain time. Have you ever seen that show? No. I thought you were talking about... <laughs> I'm talking about gremlins, but like the little characters. But it's like, like an actually a show. You've never oh, seen it? It's a no, movie. I never that's, watched That's it. what the the characters are from. <laughs> no, from. No, it's from a movie. I was just like, oh, they're gremlins. gremlins. No, there's some cardinal rules with gremlins. You can't feed them after midnight? And you can't get them wet. Oh. And that's because the, the gizmo thing turns into a gremlin. Interesting. The cute one turns into a nasty one. Well, nobody should be eating after midnight. Yeah, go to, go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but 
Anyway, so yeah, CJC and Ipamorelin, they both work very synergistically to increase the amount of growth hormone <laughs> levels in your body. Research has shown that CJC alone actually can increase growth hormone levels by two to tenfold. And they've seen that rise continue for six plus days, and that was just sub-Q CJC. Mm-hmm. And then when you pair that with ipermorelin, it becomes almost like a power peptide. It can help with increasing lean muscle mass. For women, it can help improve skin. Men as well, but that tends to be one of the reasons that women really like CJC, ipermorelin. It can also help improve cognitive function and really put you into that nice, deep sleep in the evenings, which you take the CJC ipermorelin in the evenings right. in order to go to sleep and get those increased levels of growth hormone. Some people, people will take the CJC or the CJC ipermorelin like three times a day for weight loss, but usually from an anti-aging, it's just the, the once the once a day. Yeah, just in the evenings, but some people will take it multiple times throughout the day. But yeah, like you mentioned, also in improving bone density, which mm-hmm. is going to be huge for for women as we age. Circling back to that longevity point, all of these peptides are there to help optimize. And yes, we put them into the world of longevity, but what benefit do you have with living such a long life if you don't have a high quality of life? Quality of life and aging and inflammation, they're all related. So if we can reduce inflammation and its result in aging, yeah, that's good. Longer life and better quality of life. Yeah, correct. Another point on CJC and ipermorelin that I think we should touch on is while it's working on the growth hormone aspect, people wonder what happens if they stop taking it. Like, Mm -hmm. will I lose all my growth hormone? What's going to happen? Is my body dependent now on CJC ipermorelin? But no, we're not giving any exogenous growth hormone. It's Mm -hmm. working on your own pathways to make more yourself. And so what happens is that you just, you know, slow down on your natural production like you would already were. Yes, like you would have otherwise. So you're going to return to like your 40-something levels of growth hormone as opposed to trying to get it close to the levels of like an 18, 20-something-year-old. So. Exactly. I thought we could talk a little bit about NAD, which is nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, not a peptide, but I feel like it gets brought up a lot, especially in the world of um, anti-aging. And NAD is a coenzyme that plays a really important role in the whole cellular cellular energy generation process. You think about ATP and NAD, they are both basically a way to store some of the energy that is produced by the cell and move that from one area to another. And as we get older, the NAD levels in our body just kind of slowly, slowly decrease and yeah, no, I'm saying NAD, you can replace it exogenously in, in the form of, I mean, I do it subcutaneously with injections. Yeah, yeah, it's little sub-Q injections. And again, it's one of those things that just helps optimize the cellular process. Mm-hmm. So you have everything else going for you, and this is just an additional thing to help your cells function better energy production improve metabolism all those things yeah Yeah. i think if we all learned one thing from elementary science it was what the mitochondria is and that's literally the only thing we've taken away from all of those science classes but it works on the mitochondria which is as we know the powerhouse of the cell so so one of the anesthesiologists i work with all the time always tries to tell me that um half of the american population could not find the u.s on an unmarked globe which i'm like come on the, I mean, no way. So if that's true, certainly they have no idea what you're talking about with regards to mitochondria. But I don't think that, that can't be true. <laughs> I think most everyone can find the U.S. on unmarked globe, right? Surely, like if you ask me to name off all the African countries, I can't do that. But I can, but Africa. Yeah, I'm, I can find the continent. Oh, I, you know. Yeah, I mean, still the average person. Okay, so I hope they certainly can, and I hope they do know what a mitochondria is too. Powerhouse of the cell. It's an organelle makes energy in your cells. Yes, and we all know what cells are. We are made out of a billion cells. So with NAD, you're really getting microscopic to the cell mm-hmm. and the cellular level. And so how can you optimize anything better than, you know, working at that cellular level? And there are, there are IV forms that there people are. take and also oral forms, which are just kind of analogs of NAD as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can take um, that medication in different routes if you're not interested in the... 
um, IV or sub-Q route? Yeah, the IV does take a little bit longer because you have to infuse it um, slowly, typically over two to four hours, depending on what the dose is. How many is. dose, how yeah. many milligrams you're getting. Yeah, it does take a while. And so some people, after an IV or two, they're like, all right, go ahead and switch me to the sub-Q and I'll do it. Yeah, from a convenience perspective, it is way more convenient. And also, like, even for me, because I can just have an IV whenever, it's still more convenient to do sub-Q. Yeah, and, it, yeah, and it's not easy to start an IV on yourself. You, know, you can, anyone can give a little sub-Q. Uh, yeah, it, it does take less mental preparedness to do a sub-Q injection <laughs> than for an IV. Also, what the hardest part with IV on yourself is um, it's not putting it in. It's connecting the tubing. Oh, yeah. That... You like almost have to. Yeah, you know. and then blood's black flowing, and you know, there's just, it's just everywhere. It is everywhere. Unless you put like in your foot or something, and that's another oh. level. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, <laughs> yeah I NAD. really <laughs> love doing that. That's why I've moved on to sub Q. So NAD, yes, again, not not a peptide, but something I think when you're thinking about anti-aging and injections and medications that we use regularly, it's certainly up there. How about um, epitalin? So that's another medication that I also personally use too. You um, do? Yeah. Oh, okay, I did not know that. Yeah. So people usually call it the fountain of youth peptide. It's a tetrapeptide. So it's composed of four different amino acid chains. Mm-hmm. But the way that it works is down to the level of the telomeres. So the little caps on the end of your chromosomes are telomeres. Yes. And they only, you can only divide a cell so many times. Every time a cell divides, the telomere shortens. So the cell, at some point, the telomere becomes so short that it can't really effectively divide without losing information. And so you want to have long telomeres. So that's what this medication, the epitalin, does. Sorry, go on. It works in the pineal gland of the, of the brain. And so it increases the natural production of telomerase. So it's that natural enzyme that helps cells produce telomeres. And that's basically what protects our DNA. Yeah. The other big thing is that it helps regulate levels of melatonin and cortisol. We know that when your circadian rhythm is off, it's Mm going to impact so many different processes in your body. It's going to be impacting your hormone production. And so you um, really want to make sure that in the mornings you have that cortisol rise. And then in the evenings you're having decreased levels of cortisol and your melatonin production kicks in. And so that um, also helps to reset that circadian rhythm yeah it's considered ideal to wake up at the same time every day and go to bed the same time every day and deviations from that you know that especially ones that are substantial your body doesn't like yeah your heart doesn't like it it stresses your body out yeah it sure does but yeah so epitalin give us your experience with using epitalin well so far i am still alive and so <laughs> i will have to let you know and like um let's see like 150 years yeah if i'm still around <laughs> in 100 years for sure it really works <sighs> to to be determined what about any because i know epitalin can also help improve you know skin health or even heal muscle cells? Have you noticed any of that? Or is it hard to distinguish between that and kind of, you know, like everything else that you do? I, no, I think that there's some truth to that, right? I think all these things probably play somewhat of a role. If you're trying to live a healthy lifestyle, like is that what did it? Exactly. Is it your good sleep that did it? Is it your healthy diet choices? Is it your regular exercise? There's like no one thing that's going to Yeah, and I don't think there is one thing. Mm-mm. And the more things that you can identify as potential places where you can make an impact, um, the better. Mm-hmm. Because there's no magic pill. It's a series of things. Lifestyle obviously being huge, but the things that you can control, the, the things that you are able to make some kind of impact on with, whether, with regards to how your body is working and how your body is functioning, then the more of them, the better. So I don't know. I think it's everything. So that's Dr. Roby telling everybody that you have to do everything. Yeah, I (laughs) I will say one of the biggest things when you were referencing skin, I think that that Morpheus, the the RF microneedling, made a huge impact because I have acne-prone skin, and that really did make a difference as far as putting a substantial damper on the amount of outbreaks. Not that I never get outbreaks, but they're way less. Yeah. I love Morpheus A. Yeah. The face, body, anywhere. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. It I, is the aesthetic component of the fountain. 
Right. <laughs> yes. You have to do all the things. If you want the best results, you're doing all the things. Yeah. Um, it's true. So talking about aesthetic peptides, what about melanotan? Oh, yes. The, also the Barbie. Peptide. Which I just saw that movie. And, you did. Uh, it was terrible. Really? So bad. Oh, my gosh. I was so excited to watch it. I've heard it was awesome. Really? Yeah. Who told you that? My brother. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> My 20-year-old brother that went and saw it. Okay, so this is a total tangent, but brief synopsis. Um, it starts off with the girls in the movie deciding they see a Barbie, then they just bash all their baby dolls. They literally break them all. And then they go to Barbie land, and all the Kens are basically ignored and subservient to Barbies. And Barbie's like... Uh, it's girls' night every night, Ken. And he's like, can't we spend some time together? He's like, girls' night every night. And she just ignores him. <laughs> she doesn't even know where he lives. Then there's this some kind of crisis where she has to go to the real world. And Ken jumps in the car with her. And he realizes in the real world, it's, it's more of a patriarchy where men are in control. So then Ken is really into that. He's figuring out all the things in the real world. And then he beats Barbie back to Barbie land and then institutes a patriarchy in Barbie land. And so then basically Ken does to Barbie what she had been doing to him. He has a party to go over her house. He ignores her. And then we're supposed to feel really sad for Barbie. Like they're both a-holes. And the <laughs> end of the movie is that they remain a-holes. They can't get along. Barbie said she never cared about Ken anyways. She decides to go to the real world and the pinnacle of her as a woman is that she has a vagina because she's a real woman. And so she goes to the gynecologist. The end. What? I, th <laughs> I thought Barbie and Ken were married. <laughs> so, men and women don't get along per Barbie the movie, which is ridiculous. Anyways, the Barbie peptide melanotan. <laughs> so there's actually melanotan one and two. First of all, why do they call it the Barbie peptide? Were you going to tell us that? <laughs> Barbie peptide, yes, because melanotan works on the melanocytes, so increases the production of melanin in those melanocytes, and so it's called melanotan, but what that means is it gives you a tan. It's supposed to help you lose weight, and it's supposed to have some kind of aphrodisiac type yep. side effect, so like... You're like tan, thin, and horny or something. I, I think that's, that's exactly Barbie. It. I don't that like wasn't the, those weren't like the Barbie vibes I was getting from the movie. But, uh, but yes, apparently it was like a woke Barbie. Oh my god, it was woke Barbie. It was woke Barbie. It was woke Barbie. No, that. not Atlanta tan Barbie. That Barbie is gone. No woke Barbie. If anybody else wants to be. Not the woke Barbie. They can get on Melanotan, though. Yeah, the original Barbie, yeah. Yes, the original too. Barbie. You the downside with the Melanotan, too, is it can make some dark spots, like some brown spots or molds darker. It can, yeah. Um, I was oh. curious on what that would do to freckles. Uh, if it would be darker. The other cool thing, though, about Melanotan is that it can actually be protective from skin cancer. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. Because it's increasing the amount of melanin you have. Yeah. Like, the darker just, you are, the yeah. less likely you are to get burnt in the sun, and that's what's going to decrease, or right. getting burnt in the sun is what increases your Melanin skin actually is what protects the actual DNA in your cells. The pigment protects the DNA from UV light. I did not know that. Anyways. Have you had any experience with Melanotan... I mean, do I look like I have experience with melanotan? No, I just am embracing the pale. It's fine. I wear sunscreen. I don't really care what color my skin is. I just don't want it to be, like, blotchy. Yeah. I think people get worried about looking like an Oompa Loompa on oh. melanotan. Yeah. And I, I have heard that That kind of orangey, well. that Lindsay Lohan glow spray. Yes. Or whatever. <laughs> so now you're an Oompa Loompa-looking Barbie when you're on melanotan. I don't know. Is it orange? I've never seen someone with that... Skin color. I, Other than the spray tan. Yeah, it. Uh, I have not seen that, but I have heard other people say that they felt that they looked orange yeah. in appearance. And there's also a difference between the melanotan one and two. Mm -hmm. The two tends to not give you more of that orangey appearance. Okay, are people still using melanotan one? I feel like it's just like melanotan two is like the go-to. Yeah, melanotan two tends to be the go-to with that. But, I mean, you know, we're joking that it's the Barbie peptide. But in reality, it really can be beneficial for those patients that do need just a little bit of color, especially going into the summer months. You're out in the sun a lot, and you want that additional protection. I certainly hear people talk about, oh, well, before they go on vacation, they will like, hit the tanning booth a few mm -hmm. times to 
get that protective base layer of melanin, essentially, yeah. uh, before they go overtly roast themselves in, like, the equatorial sun and, like, burn themselves. So I think that makes sense, but perhaps doing it with a melanotan for a few doses might be the safer route to go. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, you're protecting the, the DNA itself, so definitely an option for those patients that do feel like they are very susceptible to getting burnt in the sun. One other, I think... Maybe it is historical this time. The AOD, the adult obesity drug peptide. I, when we kind of first got into the world of regenerative medicine, really before semaglutide was something that people were starting to regularly prescribe, the AOD and the CJC were both used for some of their weight loss benefits. But really, with the introduction of semaglutide and the Monduro, it doesn't really stack up, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Uh, yeah, and unfortunately, like CJC and Ibramorelin, even though that one does help with weight loss, I would push that one more towards those patients that are just looking for anti-aging. I think so, too. Yeah. More to kind of boost your natural growth hormone exactly. levels. Yeah. I think so, too, as opposed to weight loss. Sure, having better growth hormone levels does result, like we were talking about earlier, the correlation between uh, growth hormone and, and weight. Yeah, exactly. Yes, there is a relationship for that. But when you're really struggling with weight, like that's more of the kind of like a side benefit. Mm-hmm. And I think the other medications tend to target more directly the, the weight issues. Choose. We do have, you know, options on the market now that will be targeting that weight loss um, a little bit more superiorly than some, than CJC or AOD would. Um, there's a copper peptide um, that's been used for, excuse me, skin regeneration and wound healing. Um, I've seen it as an additive to a lot of topicals. Yeah. Um, even ones that I think you can get like over-the-counter drugstores, I see that like, ooh, now with copper peptide. It helps stimulate collagen production. So from a skin perspective, that's certainly beneficial. I I suspect, as in many things, the impact of a copper-containing peptide, excuse me, GHK copper, is going to be a function of how much of it is in your product, just like the retinols. When you go to the drugstore and you buy something that has retinol, the amount classically for over-the-counter non-physician-based retinols is substantially lower than than what you can get from a, a prescription strength. And so the effects of the treatment are certainly less. I don't know if it's the same for the copper-based peptides or not, but I would wonder. Yeah, but I do know that almost every skincare line right now has a peptide serum. <laughs> yeah. And they don't ever mention what peptide is in the serum. It doesn't matter. You just want it. You need it. Yeah. It says peptides. So you're like, oh, that has to work. But it's like but a, bu- it's a buzzword, right? It is. It's a, it's a big marketing word. Really? It's, it's almost just like using the word protein. It is. Yeah. It's such a huge class of medications. So to imply that a peptide in and of itself is a great additive to your whatever is it's kind of bogus, but, but... I'm happy that peptides are becoming um, a lot more mainstream and they're becoming accessible to a lot more people, but we need to make sure that the peptides are well-sourced. Mm-hmm. Um, peptides are like like tinker toys, and so when you make that a little amino sequence, you need a compounding pharmacy or a place that is able to really understand how that amino sequence needs to go and make sure that it's from a reputable as well. Sure. The other peptide that we do use pretty regularly is PTD-DBM, which mm-hmm. is, this is a mouthful, but protein transduction domain, it's the PTD, and then the DBM is the DBL binding motif. So basically it's just a, a follicle regenerating peptide. So it's a topical treatment that reduces the impact of the body's hormones on shrinking the follicle, and it helps rescue the follicle at, at a cellular level. And so we will use that topically for patients with thinning hair or concerns with thinning hair. And it's been helpful. And aligned with what we were talking about earlier, if you want to maintain a lot of hair, you're throwing the kitchen sink, you're trying to think of um, m- multiple treatment modalities that are focusing on different treatment pathways to try to maintain your hair thickness. So. Our classic approach is we incorporate the peptides, the PTDDBM. It needs a a catchier name. It does, yeah. (laughs) It was a part of our topical therapies, but you can do the minoxidils. You can take Propecia's. If you don't like those potential side effects, we'll have people do things like Sol Palmetto, which can have similar benefits as the Propecia. And we do PRP. PRP injections, which are my favorites. Yeah, Mm -hmm. PRP has great results. As the laser cap, too. 
Yes. And I have a laser cap at home and I use it every other day. I am. Um, we're the one around like the office. Like office. Okay. <laughs> we have one that we all alternate through in the office, and sometimes I'll just sit there and chart with it on my head. Yeah. The nice thing about the, the laser cap, again, not a peptide. Just yeah, a not a peptide. It's <laughs> just the ability to have access to the continuous treatment. And obviously, you can have more than just yourself. Like if a spouse or a loved one also thinks their hair, hair may be thinning, which classically does with time. I look at my kids' hair. Oh my gosh, their hair is so thick and dense. I thought you were about to say thinning already, and I was like, No, oh it's my gosh. so thick. Mm-hmm. And I know my hair used to be that thick, but their hair is so thick. Um, and I'm like, You're the reason why my hair is so thin. You're so stressful. <laughs> They're not super concerned about it. It's like, mm, it stinks to be you. <laughs> it stinks to be you. Better put, you. Your, better put your cap on, Mom. <laughs> But they're so used to seeing all the crazy things. I like her. Her's mom with her cap on doing shots in the kitchen again. <laughs> and her face is it's another scabbed day. up from Morpheus. I was like, oh, what happened to you? Oh, you know. <laughs> it's the new look. Oh, man. But, yeah, pe- peptides are a fun world to get into. You know, I want to say they're for the majority of people, but really it's the majority of people that are doing all of the other things and they mm. want something else just to kind of help boost performance and stuff. Yeah, so I would say the two main, main categories that we are utilizing for are um, the weight loss population. Yep. And the people that are just wanting that extra edge, meaning I don't want to age as fast and yep. feel as bad as fast, and I don't want my hair to be as thin, and I don't want to be too pale. I, I'm okay with that. I don't want to be <laughs> all the things that, from a quality of life perspective, and, and classically from an inflammation perspective, uh, impact us as we age. Aging at some point will probably be in the DSM, whatever, as a diagnosis. Diagnosis, yeah. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can treat it. There's certainly a lot of new technologies and new medical information that's coming out. A lot of different ways we can apply these medications to various health issues. And as the knowledge base in the area increases even more directed approaches. So it is an exciting time in the field of medicine and it's an exciting time to be a human because maybe, you know, maybe I'll still be here in 100 years. I'll let you know about the epitalon then. Well, hopefully I'm still alive at that time too. Awesome. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for having me, Dr. Obi. It is a very exciting time to be in the health community right now and get to be a part of all of this and introduce some of this to our patient population as well. For sure. All right. Okay. Well, thanks, Gabby, for coming on. Thanks, everyone. Have a good day.